welcome to the Rotating Reels podcast. I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Hank Showalter and Taylor May. Today we have an away week, which means that we're going to be uh, reviewing a movie that was recommended by one of us. And so I had the pleasure of recommending Porco Rosso for review this week. Um, On the schedule, we're going to start out with a little bit of some stats about the first episode that we released this week. We're going to break into what we've been watching for the past week, and then we're going to go into non-spoilers for Porco Rosso, and then end on some spoiler thoughts. So, before we get into any of the movie stuff, I wanted to bring up some fun things about some stats that we had. So, um, as I had texted you guys earlier in the week, according to Buzzsprout, which is a hosting site that hosts around, I think, 10% 10 to 20% of the podcasts that are on iTunes right now. Their internal stats say that for a podcast that releases, uh, within seven days, if you get 76 plays within that time, you are in the 75th percentile. And as of recording right now, let me refresh, I believe we have 98 listens and we've been out for four and a half, five days now. So actually pretty good growth in that amount of time. but that's not it. That's actually not the most impressive stat that we actually have. Uh, I got an email the other day that we were trending on Chartable. And Chartable is a site that tracks um, different podcasts by their ratings on iTunes. So we have currently eight five-star ratings. All of them, or all of our eight ratings are five stars and we have four reviews as well. So we were ranked number 49 of all time in film review podcasts. Oh, thanks for watching our uh, or listening to our podcast, guys, and giving us reviews. That's nice. That's really sweet. And especially thanks to the the four of you, I think you said that actually wrote reviews. You know, I uh, I've released a number of of things in my time, and it's hard to get people to review them. So you're the standout fans. We'll remember you when we're rich and famous because of this podcast. I know. We'll devote all of our uh, Stitch Fix sponsors to you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, is that all the stats? I think that is all we have for stats. I would definitely say uh, keep playing. Definitely, uh, I would encourage you guys. We're on SoundCloud, Google, Spotify, and iTunes. I think the the easiest to track and the ones that we can get the most stats from and kind of cater to what people want to listen to would be coming through Spotify and Apple. So I would definitely encourage people to listen there. Drop a review. It really helps out, um, especially during the first two weeks. The first two to eight weeks that we're on iTunes are super crucial for how much we get picked up by the algorithm. So again, super thankful for all the the listens we got earlier um, and hoping we can kind of keep that momentum up. Uh, But that's all I had for stats. PSA real quick, apparently it matters a lot if you download the podcast on whatever platform you're looking at. I don't know who downloads podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts that have never downloaded one. But if you want to download it, that'd be nice for us. So <laughs> so be, please feel free to download if you got space on your phone or computer or whatever. We'll keep the compression small. One additional PSA before we move into what we've been watching this week. Last week one of the hosts made a reference to a horror subgenre known as torture porn. Some viewers <laughs> let us know that uh, they thought he was indicating he had a depraved fetish. In fact, this is a horror subgenre including such films as Saw and Hostel that tends to focus on having a lot of gory scenes. To be clear, it is not anything illegal. It is uh, just another <laughs> name for films such as Saw. I, I think it's I think it's the word porn that probably scares people away, right? And yeah. it's a good question though. Why why is it called why is porn in there? Because that has a lot of connotations that maybe you weren't. It's okay, Hank. It's okay. We don't think you're depraved. Yeah. Well, I tried to distance myself after I was I was trying to get out of the recording the entire time. When can, <laughs> when can I end and stop talking to this depraved weirdo? That yeah, was like the first ten week. minutes, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, he said Serbian film right after it, so I don't I don't think that fared very well for. <laughs> People thinking you're not crazy. Uh, on a totally different topic, though, Porco Rosso. Oh, no, wait. We're not doing Porco Rosso. No. We're doing what we watched. Yeah. So does anyone have uh, – I think you both said you had some pretty interesting things that you watched this week. Hank, you go. Yeah, I'll start us off. Um, so I, other than Porco Rosso, actually haven't managed to fit any movies in this week. But I got my girlfriend to start watching Mob Psycho 100 with me which is an anime. Uh, it's, it's by a studio, I believe, called One Studio. They also produced One Punch Man. But anyway, I've seen Mob Psycho 100 before. It's a really fantastic anime. I really like it because it has a lot of kind of a, like psychedelic, surrealist art going on in it. 
And it's also interesting because it starts off kind of squarely rooted in like the comedy genre. But as the, the first season progresses, it starts exploring some like family dynamics in like a fairly real way. Anyway, if you haven't seen Mob Psycho 100, definitely watch it. I'd have to recommend. They really like interesting names for their for their uh, projects, don't they? That studio, One Punch Man, Mob Psycho 1000. 100. Yeah. 100. <laughs> we won't hold it against you. Oh, you haven't seen 1000 yet? Oh, man, that's the newest one. <laughs> you see, the thing uh, is, because animes change name from season to season on occasion, I'm not sure if you're joking. Um. Oh, I have no idea, man. I don't know anything about anime. I'm excited to watch some anime with you guys, though. I'm excited for you guys to help hold my hand and guide me through that scary jungle of anime. I know. Well, you did it. You did one for this review, so... Well, okay. Porco Rosa, though. That's like the easy. <laughs> that's like training wheels anime. And I love it. I love it. Um, what I have watched this week, I started watching Shit's Creek. So I'm a little slow nice. on this one. I didn't want to watch it because everybody said it was really good. And I tend not to trust the crowd's opinion. Just kidding. Um, and it's really funny, man. It's really, really funny. And they, actually, they have some nice complexity there. So I'm just in the first, I just ended the first season. So there's, I'm sure, a lot more to go. But how they're navigating like sexual orientation and stuff. I thought it was great. I was just really, really happy with it. So, Yeah, I've seen Schitt's Creek as well, and I totally second Taylor's recommendation there. It's really funny. There's actually some complexity there. Um, I believe it's Canadian, and I always love supporting Canadian programming because it seems like <laughs> they're, they're coming up with some cool stuff in recent years. Um, yeah. yeah, anyway, great series. I, I, I second everything you said about it, Taylor. Well, Eugene Levy can do no wrong, so. Do you guys think that it picks up after... So I have this problem with watching Shit's Creek. I think I've tried on two separate occasions to get started because it was sold to me as Arrested Development if there was, like, actually good character arcs, and I love Arrested <laughs> Development. It was, like, these shitty people that are, like, they lose all their money, they're down on their luck, but, like, they have to grow from it, and they can't just, like, get by on being crappy the whole time. So I was super interested, and I just can't get past the first three episodes. I feel like it's, it's not super welcoming i don't but i hear such good things about it and i hear that like by the fourth season it gets really good so i want to i want to stick with it but it's it's tough i'd say it definitely picks up um so i I think the comparison to arrested development is apt but i think in arrested development the characters are fundamentally bad people and it's really fun to watch them being bad and being bad to each other it's like almost kind of like an always sunny sort of thing but in schitt's creek they're fundamentally good people and like watching the show is like watching them get to be to get to express their good selves and where Shit's creek starts getting good is when you realize that that's the case because it, it while while there is character development with them learning to express it um you know like in the first couple episodes they have to demonstrate that they are you know kind of like bad to begin with so that development can happen so anyway the show gets good once you start like liking and relating to the characters and it takes a few episodes to get into that so i'd say worth persevering okay cool yeah i've only watched the first season obviously so hank knows more but i uh it's it's kind of one of those shows where you kind of like all the characters but don't love any of the characters it's like they all they they all have foibles and faults that you're like ah but it it all meshes so well and the humor is just always there so yeah love it okay cool i'll give it another try then all right should we talk about our first anime hold up hold up we still haven't heard what keegan's been watching i'm sorry i'm so excited no no worries i thought i I thought you would have had more i'll surprise you only have one season of television but okay so i have three things uh all which i would definitely recommend um so i've never seen the help before um but i'm a big octavia spencer fan i saw her in ma last year really enjoyed that um really liked her in the new witches uh the new world doll Witches, where she played the grandmother super fun there um really liked viola davis in marini's black bottom um emma stone obviously really great actress as well so um super prescient movie um it unfortunately feels like uh, the, the themes are not lost on this current generation in 2021 even though this movie is like almost a decade old now um but it's really well acted really really fun for a movie that has such like serious subject matter it's surprisingly easy to watch and like very digestible very funny 
Um, so I definitely recommend that as well. I think it does a really good job of skirting the whole kind of like white savior complex um, by putting Viola Davis in as the main character. So loved that. Um, after that, I watched Soul, which Taylor, sorry, I know this was on your list of possible recommendations. Oh you. man, you can't do that. I have all kinds of movies that I would be watching if it wasn't, if they weren't on your I list. Know. And I will say, I feel like you actually have the most diverse list of possible movies, right? I think I think I really stuck to the like Korean thrillers and anime, and Hank really stuck to the horror. But you you have a pretty good mix in there. Um, but yeah, I, I think if you had it on your list, I think you probably really liked it as well. So it's like it's very inside out. It's like you know, no one at this point is unaware that Pixar is like the best American studio right now for animation. Very well written, um, very well animated. I don't want to get too into it because I think it's a movie that is kind of. Uh, in the spoilers, but definitely an easy recommendation. I saw that on Disney Plus. Um, and the last thing I watched is from Steve McQueen, who directed Widows and a couple other really notable movies. Um, and he has a new series on Amazon Prime Video and Hulu called Small Axe, which is about the West Indian community in the UK, which is not a community that I think Americans know a lot about, myself included. Um, and it's five films of varying lengths. They're not related to one another. But I watched the first movie in the series, which is called uh, Mangrove, which is about the Mangrove Nine. It's about like a restaurant in the UK where West Indians opened it. It was kind of a meeting point, like a community center for them. They would kind of have like dances at night and uh, like one of the only like West Indian restaurants in the area. Um, unfortunately, it was, it was a place for a lot of like police breakdowns or uh, like crackdowns. Um, a lot of kind of targeted attacks on the community were, were taken out on the mangrove. It was about the kind of legal proceedings of it. And so similarly to The Help, I think it's a movie that does a really good job of like tackling a complex event, but making it like incredibly easy to watch and enjoyable, super well directed. It's, you know, being based on a true story. I was a little nervous they would like play around with the legitimacy of it, but it was actually a really interesting movie. I didn't know anything about this community, didn't know anything about the event. Um, Letitia Wright from Black Panther is one of the main characters, and she's really great in this as well. So definitely going to check out, I think there's four more movies in this of uh, different lengths. I think this is actually one of the longest ones. It's two and a half hours, but it's definitely worth a watch. Um, and that's on Amazon Prime Video and Hulu. Is that small axe, like A-X-E? Yep, like a hatchet. Okay, cool. I'm definitely going to watch that. Yeah. I love Steve McQueen. I love 12 Years a Slave. That was just an incredible movie. Yep. I actually watched it recently, a couple weeks ago again. Yeah, I I hadn't even heard of it before you brought it up, but you you actually just, just sold me on it on that short blurb, at least the first movie in the series. I uh, Yeah, it sounds compelling. I enjoyed The Help. You know, the comparison to The Help never hurts. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm going to have to watch it too. Maybe, maybe some point in the future it'll be an episode. Yeah. Actually, I'll throw that on my list. Ooh, and Don't John, watch it yet, guys. John, Boy, John Boyega's in it too. That's no, great. he's in. He's in. I think the fifth movie. Well, no, I meant he's in. He's in one of them. The whole series, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're not going to Disney cool. Plus him. Yeah. <laughs> I think Disney actually tried to minus him from the from the Star Wars series. Not nah, good. Fuck them. Yeah, yeah that, right. that's a conversation for another time. Can we just save a separate <laughs> podcast for Star Wars? I don't. I feel like I'm probably the biggest Star Wars nerd out of the three of us, which is weird because I feel like you guys would be bigger nerds for everything else we're going to watch. But I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, so I would love to have a podcast where we talk about Star How have Wars. we never we, talked about this? This is, this is a huge oversight. I'm an incredibly deep Star Wars nerd. I've, I've read like... The Legends 50, canon? Yeah, uh, it's not legends for me. That's that's the real story. This that, whole Disney fan fiction thing, fan. man. Yeah. I'm not I'm not buying it. I just I just got the High Republic delivered, the new one. It's supposed nice. to be pretty good. Have you so. read the? Has either of you read the Thrawn trilogy? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Kid. Oh yeah. Any of our listeners out there, if you love good storytelling, you love Star Wars, you hate what Disney's done, pick up Timothy Zahn's The Thrawn trilogy. Best best stories you're ever going to get in star wars but anyway we're we're way off topic now yeah but uh before we return to topic uh you know look out for our second podcast where i'll be running a tabletop star wars role-playing game <laughs> set during the time of the tron the thrawn trilogy Ooh, the tron trilogy <laughs> tron legacy <laughs> yeah it was a no, tron okay. star wars crossover you never saw that keegan it was great <laughs> it's ready player one it was awful i um, fight for the user it's, you know. <laughs> What actually, okay, I'd actually thought about this. I wish we started this podcast like a year earlier because WandaVision is currently out. It's great. 
It's coming out week to week. I actually, I know people probably have their opinions on Disney, but I think Disney's doing a great job with like the whole uh, like water cooler television, whereas Netflix is like massive dumps. Um, so like week to week is really fun. So I was going to pitch to you guys like for, I think WandaVision were like three episodes and it's a little late, but for the next like Marvel or Star Wars show, do like a midweek or like a mini, mini episode for like whatever comes out. I think it'd be fun to do like 20, 30 minute reviews of like the new Mandalorian episode or Book of Boba Fett. Yeah, I'd love that. Very interested. Um, you, you tell you what, though, why don't our viewers uh, leave us some reviews, letting us know if they'd like some midweek content drops, and uh, we'll we'll use that to help decide what our next course of action is there. Yeah, viewers out there, if you want us to do those midweek short reviews of TV episodes, go ahead and leave us a five star review and a glowing <laughs> comment, and we'll get right on that. Perfect. Cool. Well, that's awesome. It sounds like we all watch a lot of good stuff. Um, so we can get into the main review this week, which is the 1992 Studio Ghibli directed by Miyazaki himself, Porco Rosso. Um, so I recommended this movie. We played Rock, Paper, Scissors, which will dictate the order of this podcast for the rest of our lives. Um, but again, had the honor of recommending this movie. I cannot say enough good things about Porco Rosso. Um, I think it's one of the most underrated movies of all of the Studio Ghibli's. Um, I think the big thing, the big reason for this is just that it's kind of more on the adult theme. I think of all the Studio Ghibli movies, it definitely has the least kind of fantastical setting. It's very grounded in the real world. It's, you know, it's about 1930s Mediterranean and, and like the Italian involvement in the war. Um, very kind of heady things to be in a kid's movie. And so one of the kind of things that I was reading on the IMDb trivia is that, um, in like a retrospective interview, uh, Miyazaki actually said that this movie, looking back, is one of his most foolish endeavors because he thinks that he kind of messed up by making a movie that was so adult for a young audience. And one of the things that we can get into later is like the line where Marco's watching a movie with his old Air Force buddy, and then he says, I'd rather be a pig than a fascist, which I thought was a great line, but as a kid, just completely over my head. Um, And I didn't really like this movie as a kid. Uh, We used to rent like all the Ghibli DVDs, and this one was very pretty, um, but I definitely, like I said, trended towards the more like fantastical ones. So I was like really into Spirited Away, uh, Totoro, like all the kind of like older setting ones. But I, as an adult, have a much more strong appreciation for this. And I know Taylor, you said you'd seen this a couple years ago. Um, back in, I think 2017 or 2018, Fathom Events was doing a series where they would show Ghibli movies every month. So you could like see an old Ghibli movie in theaters, like it was brand new it was an awesome experience um i hadn't seen the movie in years my girlfriend had never seen the movie and we just got tickets randomly to see it and i just absolutely fell in love with it not much plot per se it's very much just like a mood piece and it's beautiful and it does that very well so uh interested what you guys think i have a couple quick tidbits that i think are really fun that i want to throw out there um the movie was originally planned as a short in-flight film for japan airlines um, they were the heaviest investor in producing the movie um, and that's pretty evident in like the opening crawl where it's like i think there's five languages that come up on screen or it's like five or six languages english is like two or three down the list so it's meant for like to cater to different passengers that are going to be watching it um so it was originally dubbed in english for that it was released on airplanes before it was released um to have like a theatrical debut so there was a small english dub that wasn't really well circulated you could only see it on airplanes but then a couple years later walt disney company picked it up for distribution and they released it on dvd in the united states with the new english dub that had michael keaton as porco um so in the french dub which i didn't watch i watched english this time and usually stick to the english dub um jean renault who most people would know as leon from the professional voiced porco and miyazaki has said that he thinks that this is his preferred language viewing and it's the best language track to watch it in so something else to watch out for um Another trivia piece, Porco Rosso's plane engine, when he goes to his friend in Milan, has Ghibli stamped on it. Um, there's no Ghibli engine, but the animation studio's name was taken from an Italian airplane called the Caproni CA309 Ghibli, which had a double Alfa Romeo engine, which I thought was pretty cool. So that's kind of it for my trivia pieces. What do you guys think about the movie? Non-spoilers. Yeah, so non-spoilers... Um... I actually, I kind of want to reply to some of the things you brought up in your little trivia scroll there. Um, I'm going to start with your personal trivia, which is you saw it as a kid. 
didn't like it that much compared to the other Ghibli films, saw it as an adult and fell in love with it. Um, I actually have kind of a similar experience with it, um, though not quite exactly the same. When I first saw the movie, I saw it uh, when I was probably about 12. So, you know, I didn't remember it that well when I watched it this year. But anyway, I saw it first when I was about 12 in a childhood friend's basement on a bootleg VHS featuring what I'm pretty sure was an official subtitled version of the movie, but I'm not 100%. <laughs> but so anyway, the first time I saw it, it was in Japanese. I was 12. I, I, I don't speak any Japanese now. I didn't at 12. And uh, though I've come to love subbed anime in my life since then, at the time I uh, was a little bit of a slow reader, honestly. So I spent a lot of the movie like scrolling the subtitles and missing just how like freaking beautiful it is. Oh man! I, you know, for for our viewers that haven't seen the movie, it it looks fantastic. Like it is a treat to look at. Every frame could be a painting, in my opinion. But so, as a kid, I saw it, and I was reading through the dialogue, and and like Keegan just said, the movie is not really plot driven. It's a mood piece. So if you're just reading the dialogue. As a 12-year-old, there's not a lot there for you. So I saw it as a kid, and I didn't really love it. But I saw it, you know, as an adult. And so first of all, I saw it dubbed in English. So I was able to look at the screen the whole time rather than the subtitles. And I discovered how beautiful it was. But then also, having aged a bit, you know, like I kind of understand some of the themes going on. Like, as an adult, I know where the Adriatic Sea is. I know what a fascist is. And so, like, you know, getting this additional context really made the movie kind of like a beautiful film to me. You know, like, it, it was beautiful to look at. The themes were fairly resonant. Um, and it was just amazing to me, you know, like most movies, if I loved them as a kid, I love them now. Or like, if I hated them as a kid, I, I see them now and I'm like, I might not hate it for the same reasons, but I, I often have like a similar opinion. Um, but this movie just complete turnaround for me as a kid. I thought it was a bore fest and I couldn't take my eyes off the screen this time. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting that you had just watched Mob Psycho 100, which I think is, it's a great anime. It's very beautiful, but I think it's like probably a really nice chance to come back to hand-drawn. I think that's something that is like, I mean, you know, the production schedules and it's just not doable in modern television anime, but you know, for something like these movies that like Akira, like all these movies that could take years and years and years in production, it's like, it's so apparent the artistry that goes into these movies. Yeah, it absolutely true. And you know, I love the art in Mob Psycho 100, but there's just such a noticeable gap between mm-hmm. like like CG anime and and completely hand drawn anime, and I don't think necessarily it's like a easily definable quality difference. You know, I think they're both great in their own way, but hand drawn has such a unique look, and maybe it's just because I saw a lot of it in my childhood when I was watching more Ghibli, but. Mm-hmm. It, it just really strikes a chord in me seeing those like clearly hand drawn and hand painted uh, scenes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, one well, other so, thing. Oh, oh, go ahead, Tank. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to reply to uh, from Keegan's kind of intro facts about the film was he was talking about the various dubs for the movie. And I've only seen one English dub, which was the Walt Disney one. Um, and so, first of all, Michael Keaton as Porco Rosso. You know, if, if you've ever seen Keaton as Batman, it, it, it kind of sounds like Batman, um, which is actually yeah. really fun um, because it's just kind of a different voice than I'm used to in Ghibli films. You know, they, they tend to have a little bit more of what I think of as like kind of a tropey anime voice actors, you know, people that I've grown up to associate with being anime voices. So hearing Michael mm-hmm. Keaton was just out of nowhere. But then... There's another character in the film uh, who I won't name now uh, just because to talk about him, we really have to get into spoilers. But um, he's voiced by Carrie Hughes, who's you know famous for his work in Princess Bride. Uh, he was the protagonist in the first Saw movie. Um, but anyway, just he, he's an actor. Hank, I, Hank what, what genre would you say that the song <laughs> Saw movies fall into? You gotta just, distance yourself. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
I'm going to ignore that question. But anyway, hearing <laughs> Carrie Hughes playing like an incredibly American character in like fairly Japanese movie was interesting. Because Carrie Hughes, he, he's I believe an English actor. So anyway, it's it's kind of like hearing like his interpretation of a very English accent through a script that's been translated from Japanese, and it was. I don't know why, but it was just delightful to see and to listen to. Um, and just kind of a, a fairly unique experience. Uh, but anyway, those are the two things I wanted to reply to from Keegan's opening sprawl. Taylor, what are your first thoughts about the film? Well, I kind of different from you guys in that I, I never watched anime or anything like that when I was growing up. So I didn't watch any of the Studio Ghibli movies until I was an adult. Um, and actually that when I first saw Porco Rosso, it was a couple years ago and one of the local movie theaters here did one of those things you were mentioning, Keegan, where, um, they played these old anime movies. So I got to go and in theaters, watch some like huge names, obviously all the studio Ghibli movies, um, from the very well-known ones like Howl's Moving Castle to the less well-known ones like Porco Rosso, but also Akira and a lot of these old movies. And, um, Grave of the Firefly was another movie, sort of like the movie we reviewed last week, which is just depression. I don't know why anyone ever watches it, but it, I, uh, Dare I say misery porn. <laughs> yeah, there you go. God. Uh, so I, I didn't have any like preconceptions about any of these kinds of movies until I came in, um, as it, as an adult. And I was at once struck with the beauty of the animation. Um, and I, I, I sort of had a hard time initially in that they're, they can be kind of slow, these, these Studio Ghibli movies. Um, and Porco Rosso was kind of the first one, honestly, where I didn't mind it because it was so pretty. And we can talk, when we get into spoiler stuff, we can talk more about individual scenes. But there's a huge portion of this movie that almost is sort of like a, like a tourism ad. Because you're, you're seeing, you know, there's all the, pl there's not a lot of plot, but there's all the things going on in the movie. And the backdrop is perpetually gorgeous, right? Whether you're flying over Italy and it's it's these little country farms or it's the cities of Milan or there's castles or it's the Adriatic and these islands, just whatever you're doing is just like a great ad to go visit the Adriatic and go like, Hank, it made me want to go sail the Adriatic, honestly, just because it was, it's just that pretty. And, you know, other, other Ghibli movies that I felt were a little slower didn't kind of have that almost re not realism but it's 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 a recognizable place and i think that's where porco rosso is a pretty big departure from some of the other studio ghibli movies that are mm -hmm. purely fantasy right like in in porco rosso you can actually go to some of these places his little hideout that you see right in the beginning that's a real island I and mean, that's a yep. real place so you can go and see all of these things and um the the beauty of it is, is just sort of overwhelming, honestly. Some of the scenes when he's flying and there's the there's breaks in the clouds, so the sea is otherwise dark, but through the break in the clouds, you're illuminating the small circle of the ocean. I, it's just staggering sometimes how pretty it is. Um, and I also love the time period. I love that post World War One time period where we still we still have the great outfits. Modernity hasn't fully taken us in, so all the guys are wearing hats. JFK hasn't ruined that for everyone. It's great. I. I Every bit about the movie, I honestly love. I don't, I don't have any problems with it at all. It still has that whimsical Studio Ghibli feel. When we learn about how uh, he kind of became a pig, so we won't talk about how that happens until we get into spoilers. But you learn right off the bat, this this guy's a pig, so that's not ruining anything for you. I'll definitely take you up on the modernity aspect. I think all of us definitely enjoyed the movie. Uh, I think. That's kind of an understatement. Um, so I'll take us into spoilers right now. Um, so something to follow up on that. Um, so you talk about how, like, you know, Marco originally was a human man. Um, and then Porco is kind of a play on that by, you know, he's a pig now. And he, he's like, a, he, for all intents and purposes, he's a human. He just has like a pig head, which, you know, kind of plays into the whole like themes. Kind of a, a B plot of him being a little pig headed. But there are a couple scenes where we see what Marco used to look like as a human man. And for viewers that don't know us in real life, he looks like how Taylor looks in real life. He's just <laughs> this tall, European, mustachioed man, very well-dressed. And it was, it's, if anything, I think that was one of the most striking parts that stuck out to me <laughs> on 10th Watch. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's really the the pig snout and the trotters. That's what makes him look like me. That's that's really what it is. Ah <laughs> oh, man, I didn't even think about that. That's he's a little Italian guy. He's a little Italian guy that looks like an animated Japanese guy. How does that? How is that me? What are you talking? I don't about? think he's meant to be small. I think he's only small in, in pig form, right? And I think he's only small next, in, like relative to Curtis. Right. Yeah, well, that might be true because we didn't. We only when we see him as a human, he's a young man, almost, like in yep. his late teens, almost. Right. So because yeah, I he, think he's meant to be the same size as Ferrari, the guy he meets in the like. I think they're probably around the same size, so it it still holds water. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that, but I'll take it. I'll take it. You should be proud to be Porco Taylor. <laughs> yeah, it's a compliment. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. I'll go with it. No. I mean, to follow up on, uh, you're talking a lot about, like, you know, his, the island is a real place based on something in Croatia. There's, like, a lot of, I think, things that would come up in later Miyazaki movies that kind of, like, you know, push him towards, like, one of these things that make him an auteur. And, and one of those is this huge fascination with aviation. So, I mean, if you've seen all of his movies, The Wind Rises, um, Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, there's all these elements of people that just have, like, this, and just this respect of people that can, like, fly and these beautiful scenes of just kind of quiet and moving through the clouds, like you said. Um, but one of the things that really sticks out to me, and there's a Japanese word for it that I actually had pulled up in my notes, but I don't, doesn't look like I saved them, but there's this real, like, Japanese lens on Europe, and it's this, like, it's kind of funny because there's this, like, juxtaposition, right, of this, like, Japanese love adoration respect for milan and croatia and all these like beautiful mediterranean locations clearly you know he'd done his homework everyone's kind of dressed similarly period correct and it's all it's all beautifully drawn um and then it's it's kind of pushed against this like caricature of like a pig-headed american with curtis and and his cockiness and his not understanding of the ways of love in europe when he's trying to to court gina um but it's just kind of fun that there's like this this blatant disrespect to the American characters, but just this love for Europe. But again, I think like you talked about even Howl's Moving Castle, which tends to be more on the fantastical side, obviously, is like firmly set in France. And I think like for people that aren't as into anime, I think that's one of the things that makes these movies such good stepping stones into the genre is because like you're not thrown into a Japanese schoolgirl's life, right? Like you're not doing 300 feet tall mech robots fighting each other. It's It's really really easy to step in and just like be in this period correct time of italy or france or these you know beautiful landscapes that could you know, easily just at any point be a wallpaper on your computer um yeah it's approachable example, but yeah, yeah yeah definitely can we can we talk a little bit about what you were just saying that sort of love and admiration for europe because that is something really interesting about this movie is that it is this sort of fantasy thing, right? One of the first scenes in the movie is these air pirates and their seaplanes are uh, attacking some sort of passenger liner. They're stealing a bunch of gold and they're kidnapping a bunch of young schoolgirls sort of as protection or something, who knows? And the schoolgirls have this, what I kind of think of as like a traditional Japanese anime trope where they're laughing and smiling and they're excited to be kidnapped and, and nothing, it's very clear to the audience, like this is this is sort of a jolly movie and nothing bad is going to befall these young girls because they're innocent parties. And even the bad guys realize that. And so it's, it's this, I don't even know how, how, quite how to put it. It's, it's, we're engaging with these European tropes or ideas. Right. And we're even engaging with some pretty heavy ones like fascism. There's this sort of background plot going on of fascism rising in Italy and they have different flags. We're not talking about Mussolini or anything, right? It's not that over over on the nose with it, but we don't really engage with the messiness of them, right? Where they're just sort of there as the beautiful backdrop. And so because you're in the Adriatic, well, you got to mention fascism if it's the right time period, but we don't really get into it, right? The Italian air force never really comes. It's always sort of in the background. I thought that was really interesting and maybe I don't want to say a failing of the movie, but something that maybe contributed to not being this massive success is that it's trying to do a lot of things at once, right? It's trying to tell the story of this guy, and it's using very whimsical, magical things to do it. He's a pig, for God's sakes, right? And it's also trying to engage with what was going on in the Adriatic at the time, kind of. Obviously, there weren't air pirates or anything like that, but it, it's sort of like... it. it hits everything it's trying to hit at sort of uh, a half strength 
we're not really engaging with the whimsical. We're not really engaging with fascism and what that meant. Do you, do you guys feel the same way or, or, or what do you think? No, I, I think I tend to agree. Um, and I, like you said, I don't know if I'd call it a failing, but it's definitely an interesting aspect of the film is that, you know, on the surface, it appears, you know, fairly whimsical, fairly aimed at children um, or not, not children, but uh, well, I suppose aimed at children, enjoyable by adults. But the important yeah. part is it's fairly whimsical on the surface. The The animation is friendly. The plot doesn't really go anywhere that a, a child couldn't couldn't go comfortably. Um, but then there are these much heavier themes throughout the movie. And um, I guess uh, when I was watching it, I was trying to think, like, are these heavier themes, like like fascism in Italy, are they being included purely as backdrop elements or are they being included as kind of Miyazaki's way of, of, of talking about them and like espousing his views on them, but still doing it in like a, a pleasing way to the viewer? I don't know. I guess one overarching thought for me throughout the film is often when you talk about these topics, you, you, you have to do it in a way that's inherently off-putting to your intentional audience. They're, they're uncomfortable topics. And Miyazaki does it in a way that is not at all off-putting to the viewer, but still expresses a clear disdain for fascism and its ideals. And so I think it's kind of an interesting way to look at those, those difficult topics, though to someone that was going in and wanted something, you know, that was like clearly showing what fascism is and why we dislike it, I could see why it might be lacking. I mean, do you do you think it engaged with? Uh, obviously, we're talking about a, a, an animated movie that you're right. It primarily, is is focused at children, but is still enjoyable by adults. But do you think it really engaged with fascism? I mean, we use the word fascism a lot, which is a big word. We saw flags and banners and tanks and all this stuff, and I, we never once talked about what the fascists are, what they believe, anything like that. Right? They're just this off-screen kind of boogeyman that could mess stuff up but even porco kind of doesn't really think of them as a big deal he always like when someone's like porco the fascist police are about to arrest you and who knows what that means and he goes uh i don't care about anybody but myself and it's like okay but they're chasing you right now like that maybe you should be concerned <laughs> about them yeah you know, again i don't think this is a a failing of the movie right that's not mm -hmm. the point of the movie but it's really interesting that they've tried to thread this needle where we're having this this whimsical story and we're still going to mention some pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, I I think I would tend to agree with what I think you're saying, which is that it didn't necessarily engage with the topics. Um, but I, I think what I'm trying to say here is that while it didn't like engage the topics and, and tackle them in a way that an audience that wanted the film to engage the topics would have liked... Um, it still kind of showed Miyazaki's views on on it in more in a more general sense. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, while it might not have engaged with the topics, it was still kind of like an interesting way of, of presenting it in a very general manner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, we don't need to go down a cul-de-sac with this. I mean, the point of the movie was not to talk about fascism. And, you know, the whole takeaway was that fascism is bad. And I'm very fine with that takeaway. I don't have any problems with that. I, and to be fair, so I think this is like something that comes up in a lot of Miyazaki movies. is like straddling this line between, you know, pleasing watchability and, and having these like strong ideals. And I think like Miyazaki is carries a lot of these anti-war, anti-industrialist like opinions through a lot of his movies. And I, I think that like... Part of this stems from the fact that originally this was based on a three-part manga that he had written, um, and it was purely comedy. So it was like, that was kind of what led to this being financed for um, the Japan Airlines, is it was, you know, very comical, very light. It was easy to show, uh, you know, in flight um, and just digest it and not think about it. But during the time, there was a lot of unrest in Europe, and it kind of... Miyazaki grapple with it. He wanted to make it a full-length movie and, and kind of introduce some of these elements. Um, but I agree. I think like if you think to Princess Mononoke, there's like uh, uh, there's what is it Iron Town? There's just this huge a plot of this town that's just destroying the natural habitat and, and like causing destruction, pushing away the, all the animals in it. And I think it while it's not 
well, I would argue that it's a bigger part of the plot than the fascists are in this movie, but I, I do think that it does a much better job of showing like what it is that you're working against, whereas I, I agree that it, it's kind of this, like, I think that part of the, the premise of this movie is that the fascists are very bad, but also like the Italian army is not necessarily something to be glorified either. Um, and so to that point, I think like one of the things that was kind of odd about that in the portrayal that was kind of this weird, melancholic, pretty Porco Rosa way of addressing it was the dogfight. So he's telling you know the girl about this dogfight he was in. And it was kind of like confusing at the time because the first shot of all the airplanes flying together is super pretty. It almost looks like a bunch of butterflies on screen with like this blue sky backdrop. Mm-hmm. But it's like arguably the most horrific thing he'd ever gone through, right? He sees a bunch of his friends die and ostensibly go up to heaven in this kind of like weird fantasy dream sequence. So it's like these horrible, horrible things of war that come about, but they're also presented in this like very light, like child friendly way that Disney was like comfortable enough to buy for the distribution right so i agree i think like it's a very long-winded way of saying like i don't think this was a great adaptation to have those elements introduced very strongly and i think there could have been a little bit more done to introduce them but again i think like it's it's very much a mood piece that just uses that for a lot of set dressing to justify being set in 1930s you know mediterranean yeah yeah no and that that scene is kind of one of my favorites in the movie because it stands out so much right so he's explaining to this uh 17 year old girl who's his mechanic now against his wishes um he's explained to her how he became a pig him being a pig is a pretty interesting um piece of the movie because everyone calls him a pig whether it's uh making fun of him or just a statement of fact um and they kind of just accept it like no one is incredibly bothered that there's a humanoid pig flying a plane around the adriatic right so he's explaining to her how he became a pig and it's 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 he, he he's mentioning that he's was in this dogfight which we presuming is world war one but he used to fly for the italian air force and it was terrible like you said all his friends died and everything and then he goes into this sort of dreamscape that's above the clouds and he sees all the pilots who have ever died i mean it's it's really really interesting and you know he's, he's after he finishes this story kind of explaining how you became a pig and you you know you wonder if I think even the the girl i forget her name but i think she even says oh god spared you to come back here um we never really find out the meaning of him being a pig but we also that that is sort of this it's not superfluous i mean i mean it, it but it's just real in passing him condemning war and that seems to be an enormous part of his character he still fights but he fights for himself and he doesn't fight for ideas anymore and that could have really given us a lot more insight into his character and to why he does the thing that he does. And again, I don't think this is something the movie did poorly, right? Again, we don't, it's a, it's a kid's movie that's sort of a mood mm. piece, right? So we don't need all of that. And I think it's, in some ways, it's nice that you can still talk about it. It still says, hey, there's a lot more left of this character that didn't get left on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, that, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you guys can correct me. But that, I think that's the most mystical scene in the whole movie right the, the only time we really see stuff that goes beyond reality yeah yeah no and i agree i think like you know i think my neighbor tetra was brought up as a movie that is like incredibly unplot driven right because like you, essentially you just have this these two sisters that are wandering into a wood and then they meet a magical character it may or may not be real just part of their playing pretend but there is a lot of those characters that are left untold as well right but i think there's like a lot of lasting power to these miyazaki movies for other reasons and i think like they're not really concerned with the plot or the backgrounds of the characters because for my neighbor totoro it's it's the two girls and their dad moving into a derelict house the mom isn't present i don't if memory serves i think she might have passed away but it's not you know super well spelled out why the mom isn't there why it is that they're moving out to the country for no reason to this pretty beat up old house um but again, there's just a ton of staying power due to the visuals and just kind of the like the whimsy of the movie. So it's it's kind of an interesting in like how much can style become the substance, right? Like how much can we just show Porco flying this like beautiful red plane through the Adriatic Sea and, and let that be kind of the heft of the movie and, and be okay with it while not knowing any of his motivations. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think I think it works and it's almost like they get to cheat because it's so pretty. Yeah. <laughs> right it's 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 sort of like it's like the it's 
like the uh, the privilege given to attractive people. Same thing with this movie. That <laughs> it just it just gets to do a lot of what it wants to do because any of the scenes you can just pause the movie and be like, man, that's cool. That's really yeah. cool. I I think though there is something to be said, you know, beyond just the film being incredibly pretty. Um, I, I think that Miyazaki has this kind of interesting method of he 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 gives you some characters in a plot and they can be kind of loose. You don't know the characters that well. The plot isn't that uh, like central to the film itself. You know, obviously the movie follows the plot, but it's not like the key focus of the film. But I think it can actually be rather powerful because, you know, the movie's an hour and a half long. An hour and a half is not nearly enough time to get to know one person, let alone every character in the film. But it is enough time to show, like, an important part in all of the characters' lives. And I think that Miyazaki is really good at kind of, like, picking one of those moments from characters' lives and making you care about that moment, even though you don't know the characters that well. And I feel like a lot of other films rely on you caring about the characters and knowing them really well to make you care about the plot. So it's kind of interesting to me that Miyazaki, and I, I haven't seen a lot of other people do this effectively, but Miyazaki is able to kind of like take a moment out of like all of these people's lives, and he makes it beautiful. I'm not saying that's not part of it, but he's also able to make it compelling without giving you all this exposition of like who this is who everyone is here's what they believe in here's you know like everyone they've known throughout their lives he's able to just say like you know you're only seeing what is happening during this moment and that's still enough that's a really good point that's a really good point yeah and i think to that i think like looking back on the life that marco must have led it, it like one of the thoughts i have watching the movie is like there are like dozens of movies that could have been made at any point throughout his life that probably would have been infinitely more interesting, right? Like, I think if you had a movie 1914, 1915, following his direct involvement in the war or him defecting, right? Like very plot, very narrative driven, um, would have probably been more interesting in a conventional sense, but we're just, I think we're with them for three days, maybe two days where there's not much as far as a framing device. I mean, there's like a race, but yeah, like it's very compelling despite the fact that this is not an integral part of any of their lives. It's just kind of a, a section where their lives intersect and, and, and move on from there, but just kind of this window into it. Yeah, and, you know, if we had really been delving into fascism or into World War One and his defection and stuff, it might have been harder to insert whimsy and magic and all the things that um, Studio Ghibli does so well. Mm-hmm. I have one point that I want to bring up that I, uh, it's going to sound a little harsh, but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up, which is misogyny. Mm. It's, it's, there's a lot of it in the movie and, and some of it is, um, quaint and some of it is, so I, I'll just bring it up there. What did you guys have that same reaction to certain parts of the movie or, or, or what am I, am I all on my own on this one? Yeah. I, I feel like uh, a lot of what you're referring to here is the, the 17 year old mechanic and the repeated comments that are like, keep your hands off her. Like, yeah, like she's something to be stolen rather than a character in her own. Right. Oh, um, the guys can't help it. She's too pretty. Yeah. Yeah. And then like also, there's like the moment with the sky pirates where you know like they're all rushing to her and then she's like oh well i'm just so pretty and innocent and suddenly they're all like loving and respecting her and even though it's it's kind of a heartwarming moment it's like is this only because she's like a really pretty woman and you haven't seen one before is that the the only thing keeping you from being you know like horrible barbarians well she has to flatter them too right she has that whole speech about what uh seaplane pilots are like and they're honorable and all this stuff and that really she wins them over the whole rest of the movie they're they look out for her when the the betting's happening and people are are you know being wild and and ruck and creating ruckus they say like oh we respect and, and honor her blah 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 but is that only because she told you a nice story about yourselves? <laughs> like, come on, man. And, yeah, you know, I think she had to stroke their ego a little bit to, you know, cause any kind of respect. I, even before that, right, when it's all the women in the repair shop uh, doing the repairs and they're saying grace before the meal and the uh, patriarch of the family says, uh, please, God, forgive us for building a fighter plane with women's hands. 
you know, just there's a lot. Of, and you wonder, like, was, was were they trying to be historically accurate or, or what? Like, what? why was that in there? Was it just the the biases that Miyazaki had or, or, or what? What do you guys think? Well, it's tough, too, because it's like there's I think like it's really, really it wants to be this replication of this like romantic Hollywood and in European movies. Right. Like when he, I think what was the note that I wrote where he says, sorry, baby, you got to fly. I, it, and it's like it's so cool. It's so romantic. It's like this Casablanca kind of like, yeah, this borderline like, oh, so like, you know, I'm a man married to my job. And, and that comes first. And you can wait in the garden for me. And it's not a really strong character point but it's also it's infinitely cool to watch but i think it does do enough in porco's regard to kind of like give him you know the older women making his plane i think he kind of comes around but i do agree that the whole plot with the younger engineer definitely had some was pretty rough around the edges yeah what i i i guess i couldn't quite parse out whether that was just Miyazaki and, and Studio Ghibli's thinking about women when they made the movie, or if it was trying to be historically accurate. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out where that was coming from because it is, you know, it's it's noticeable. It comes mm. up all the time that we, we don't have a single woman fighter pilot. There's not a single one in the whole movie, right? So. Yeah, and I, I love the film to be clear, but I do have to agree with you that or I I think agree with you that I don't think it's entirely just trying to be historically accurate because when you get down to it, there, there weren't sky pirates in the Adriatic at any point in history. There've been like maybe one or two occurrences of any sky piracy happening in history. So, which is too bad, by the way, sky piracy is tight. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we, we can get into that in a different episode, all of the sky piracy in films and why hasn't it happened in real life? It's way cooler um, than water piracy, but anyway, sorry. But but what I'm trying to say is, you know, the movie makes clear from the first scene where they're talking about sky pirates raiding an ocean liner. It's not about historical accuracy. You know, it's, it's about the beauty. It's about this moment from all these characters lives. And so I don't think there's a lot of an argument to be made that, you know, them not wanting all these women to build the plane is a point of historical accuracy. I think that it is honestly just plain sexism. But what I will say, and I don't think this negates that point at all, is that there is at least the fact that they're shown to be like doing it well like there's like some inherent sexism in the characters but uh and even though it doesn't redeem the whole thing i do like that the plane comes out better than ever (laughs) um but overall i I think that you have a good point there is some rampant misogyny in the film and honestly it's it's fairly integral to the plot with the uh young 17 year old mechanic being an important part of porco and curtis's bet um well, yeah, she's an object of the bet, right? She's equal to a sack of money, you know. I think I think we're gonna kill the ratings, guys. Unfortunately, I have seen bigger podcasts get taken down for being big old libtards in their reviews. But I will wow. introduce the most libtard idea of all that I think this movie doesn't pass the Bechdel test. So, for those that don't know the Bechdel test, there has to be in a given movie two female characters. They have to have lines of dialogue where they speak directly to one another not through a male character and they have to be speaking about something that doesn't regard the male lead it's like there's plenty of women in the movie but i think they're only speaking about porco building his plane where he's at so Hmm. again Hmm. i'm kind of in the boat of the historical accuracy piece i think the, the female characters kind of just serve to show that porco has a heart but that doesn't justify giving them any, you know, there's no depth given to them at all other than, you know, the two romantic leads. And again, I don't think those characters would be in the movie if they weren't kind of this point of, of romantic interest for Porco. So a little unfortunate, potentially a product of its time, but I don't think that necessarily excuses it. Yeah, definitely no. not something I would excuse out of hand, but I, you know, overall, I don't think it ruins the movie or devalues mm-hmm. it or, it, it, you know, maybe maybe devalues it to some extent, but not completely. Um, I think more of that, an aging thing, if anything. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that you know, pretty much anyone could watch this movie and get something from it. Um, you know, that said, there is some you know problematic content to to, to notice. You know, it's a content that we wouldn't necessarily agree with today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a libtard. I think I, the only reason that I kind of bring that up was that 
it just seemed it seemed such a missed opportunity, right? So we have I forget her name now. Gina is is she the one that owns the bar hotel? Yep, yeah, Gina. Gina. So we have a strong female character, but most of what we learn about her is about men, right? It's about her mm-hmm. love life, or you know, the whole the whole ending scene, right, is about whether or not this major thing in Gina's life did or did not occur. It's this, it's this bet where the audience is left wondering, which is a great device in and of itself. But again, it's about men. Gina's a very successful businesswoman, right? She's got this gorgeous hotel on some random little island in the middle of the Adriatic. And she encounters another very strong female character in this 17-year-old engineer, right, who has gotten to do... She's forced all these established male characters to do what she wants to build this plane that she thinks needs to be built. She's won all the pirates of the Adriatic over. And I think it would have been cool to, you know, we're only at an hour and a half runtime, so we don't have a lot of time for this, all this kind of character development, but it would have been cool to have those two characters interact more than, I think they do once. I think when the whole dog fights over, I think Gina says something to, is her name Fiona? Is that the name? I of think the, it's Fio, F-I-O. Fio? Yeah. So I think, Just I think Fio. they have one line to her, but it's something like, you know, get in the plane or something. It's it's not a line of consequence. Um, but you know, I, I watched this movie, and I I kept thinking, if you're if you're a woman watching this movie, the only character that has the same um, sex as you is that is, are these very minor characters or characters whose whole identity is tied up in men. So that just seemed like, hey, if you're gonna make a movie, you should appeal to half of the population. But you know. Uh, kind of going. It's unfortunate because it's like it's it's interesting to want to talk about the the love plot, but it's also you know it, it you do bring up a good point that there are some problematic elements of it that you know she only exists really to kind of service the main character. But I guess I'll end. Do you guys think that Gina and Marco actually end up together? Um, do you think that matters? I, I guess I'll leave that to you guys. You go first, Hank. Man, that's a hard question, and it's actually one that I've been wrestling with since I watched the movie a couple days ago. I'm like, does Marco ever show up in the garden? Um, And obviously not knowing it is like a really powerful tool, but I want it to know. And uh, I feel like Marco couldn't really ever show up because I feel like, you know, in the movie... You know, there's like this whole problem with him kind of struggling with being a pig. Like he doesn't really care, but, you know, he brings it up all the time. He's like, I'm a pig. And it seems like because of that, he distances himself from human company. Um, There are a number of times where he talks about how as a pig, he doesn't have to adhere to like the same codes as humans do. and, And, you know, as a pig, he wouldn't be guaranteed the same trial a human would be guaranteed. Things like that. And though throughout the movie there are moments where he appears again as human when he does something especially honorable or heroic, and in fact the last scene where we see him in, it's it's implied that he's showed up as human again, I think that a lot of the movie seems to be him not really being able to get away from being a pig, and I don't feel, while I feel like what happened at the end of the film was powerful for him and like it gave him a moment, I don't necessarily feel like it was powerful enough to completely reverse the pig thing. So in my mind, Marco stays Porco after the film, though he's had a powerful experience. It's had a positive impact on the people around him. But because he remains Porco, I don't think he showed up in Gina's garden because I think a key part of being Porco was that he's distanced from human company. Man, Hank, that that's really well thought out, but I gotta say, I think you're wrong, man. Because, look, so Fio said, well, after Porco told her of that mystical encounter above the clouds, she said, what if I just kiss you? Like in all the old stories, right? You're the, the prince who's been turned into a frog, gets a kiss from a beautiful lady, turns back into a prince. At the very end of the dogfight, she kisses Porco on his big pig lips, right? And it's not a romantic <laughs> thing. It's like a endearing affection thing. She saved him from getting married to a man she didn't want because that's a woman's lot in life. Um, and then we never see him. The only time anyone ever sees him again after he's been kissed is when Curtis is following him and saying, your face, let me see your face. What's going on with your face, right? I think he got turned back into a human because of the kiss. 
and his whole response for when Fio is like, oh, I should kiss you. He's like, bruh, 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 bruh. no, 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 that doesn't work. You're, you're a kid. What do you know, right? But we're constantly being reminded that Fio actually knows what she's talking about. Fio's the one that really makes most of the third act happen, right? She gets the pirates to not kill Porco. She's, so she's a pretty big driving force. But I, I, I like the idea that we don't know. I think that's great. It's like the end of Seven Samurai, right, where you don't know if the guy goes to the girl or not. And everyone can take it the way that they want to take it, and it still works out because the characters still feel complete either way. So I I think there's a decent chance, Hank, that, that he became a, a human again and was redeemed from his porkish existence, but I like not knowing. Now, yeah, Keegan. actually, so I don't... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I cut you off. I was just going to say, Keegan break the tie yeah i okay i don't think i'm actually gonna break the tie this is unfortunate i don't i don't have much of an opinion either way on whether or not i think he becomes a human but i think it's pretty clear and maybe i'm wrong in this but i'm pretty sure that he ends up going back to gina right because her big thing is like she'll wait in the garden like she's she's always out in her garden she's even there with curtis when he's trying to court her but i'm pretty sure in the end you see her, her garden is empty which implies that she could leave, that Porco came back for her. And also, during the credits, or, or very late in the movie, you see his red plane parked out front. So I think, regardless of whether or not he turns back into a human, I think it's pretty clear that he ends up with Gina, or at least in her company, in some regard. Um, to the human part, I don't really necessarily know what the rules are around him like fading back and forth, because he also turns into a human for a few minutes when he's like counting the bullets, when Fio's supposed to be sleeping. So I don't, and obviously they hadn't kissed at that point either. So yeah. I'm kind of confused to what the rules are in that. So I don't know, maybe he ends up a pig and, and ends up with Gina as well. But I, I don't know. I think I think it's like he kind of can accidentally like show his true form to people when he's like vulnerable, like, you know, what happened at, at the campsite. So I don't know. Yeah. I think that part's a little a little up in the air. Yeah, no, that, I... I, I agree that it's it wasn't clear on the rules and it also wasn't clear on the sort of love triangle we had going on with Marco and Gina and that other guy she liked who got killed right wasn't that her lover and then Marco Can't was just a friend pilots or whatever yeah. yeah 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 exactly but I we should say none of this takes away from the movie right even sure. even the misogyny which is you know in my mind a pretty hefty penalty on a movie I want to enjoy watching um it, 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 it overcomes that in a lot of ways, not least of which is that um, ultimately all the women are treated with respect, right? So we, we deal with that, you know, proximate uh, problem, but the rest of the movie is just, it's just incredible. It's not just how pretty it is. It's not just um, all the clothing and the decor and the planes and all of that. It's like, it takes you away to this whimsical place that somehow still feels real and somehow still feels like some a story human beings can live you know yeah i i think i'd have to second second pretty much everything you just said there um my big takeaway from this movie is i think it would have been real difficult to watch it and not fall in love with what was happening in front of you you know like i i i can't speak for everyone but i like if i had come in wanting to hate it i think i would have had a hard time so i definitely recommend it yeah, every, yeah everybody's endearing i'm glad you guys liked it I think again this is you know it's it's a movie that i've really loved for i think the past five or so years since i, I rewatched it but um it's kind of fun and i think there's a lot of movies in the ghibli catalog that kind of fall into this category that aren't quite as fun when you're a kid i think the wind rises is the last movie that Miyazaki directly, you know, had an impact in from like a directorial standpoint. And it was super boring when I saw it in 2018. But, you know, having a little bit of time to, to step back and, and reapproach them with a more adult eye is, is really great. So um, I'm glad you guys liked it. It was, it was uh, fun to revisit it for sure. Definitely a more uplifting movie than Pieces of a Woman. My God. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm glad to have a movie that I can recommend to the viewership. <laughs> yeah. yeah if you haven't well, seen porco rosso please go see porco rosso even if you definitely. don't like anime i i think i think you'll like it and so i think i part of my recommending porco rosso was coming off of how kind of emotionally depraved pieces of a woman was <laughs> um you know maybe the next movie white we'll be reviewing white tiger next week maybe we'll be in a different place taylor do you have any kind of inclination to what movie you're thinking about recommending us two weeks from now 
Oh, I got some good. I got some good ideas, but I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it. I want to keep okay. you guys guessing. Yeah, we got to save that for next Friday at least. Yeah, fair. Okay, cool. Any any other pieces on Porco Rosso before we wrap this up? I I will say that, you know, a lot of the stock characters in the movie are these pirates, these these kind of brigand characters that are dirty. There's a lot of jokes about them not bathing. And yet when they all get, decide to take a bath and get dressed up for the big final dog fight, they're all wearing appropriate, you know, interwar period clothing. And despite all of their different body shapes, some of them are, are short, some of them are tall, some of them are fat, some of them are skinny, some of them are muscular, whatever. They all look great. So if, if you're a, a man listening to this podcast, go out and buy yourself a suit. I think it'll do... Uh, <laughs> I think I think it'll do something for you, and I and I think that Porco Rosso maybe gives you the inspiration to think, hey, I can wear a flower in my lapel. That's a man. Look at this pirate, this manly pirate. He's got a bushy beard, still wearing his flight cap. He's got a flower in his lapel. It's okay. So I think the final word that we'll wrap up with is that Porco Rosso, great movie, great for male body positivity. Maybe not so great on the feminist front, but overall, <laughs> a movie we all really enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah, those are my takeaways too. Cool. cool word. Cool, cool. All right. Well, uh, so next week we'll be watching The White Tiger. Uh, it's a Netflix movie, uh, and I'll read the IMDb blurb here real quick. The epic journey of a poor Indian driver who must use his wit and cunning to break free from servitude to his rich masters and rise to the top of the heap. Uh, it's starring Priyanka Chopra, um, and it's directed by... It's directed by Raman Bharani, who is a pretty prolific director. Last thing that he made pretty noticeable, pretty notable for the, uh, I guess the U.S. market was um, the 2018 adaptation of Fahrenheit 451 with Michael B. Jordan. I think that was an HBO original. Um, also, a pretty good movie. So, looking forward to that. Uh, and the following the week after that, Taylor will be recommending, and then Hank will be the last to recommend, and then we'll we'll recycle through this. Um, I don't know if you guys have any other closing thoughts. Um, I'll leave that to you guys. But one thing, uh, Hank, you did make our um, intro. Do you have any like a music related Twitter or anything you want to point people to where they can hear more of your music? Um, yeah, actually. Uh, but I'm going to edit it in at the end because I can't remember our SoundCloud link. <laughs> I'm part of a comedic musical duo known as Friends with Benefits. And uh, you can look us up and enjoy some. It's difficult to put a genre on it, but uh, I, I, I hope you'll enjoy <laughs> So recommend Friends with Benefits on SoundCloud. Probably don't listen to us on SoundCloud. We're not getting a lot of traction there. Again, I would push you to our, our iTunes where you can actually write a review. Please throw us a five-star rating. It would really help us out in the algorithm. And if you want to see those midweek uh, Marvel Star Wars reviews, that's definitely the way to keep us going is, is doing those so we can maybe get the eye of some sponsors. That would be really awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I think that wraps up this episode. I'm going to stop recording. Thanks, guys, for, for watching this movie with me. Yeah, thanks yeah, everyone. Thanks, man.